The next case today is Marion Ryan et al. versus U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcers et al., appeal number 191838. Thank you. Good morning. May it please the Court. My name is Francesca Genova with the U.S. Department of Justice representing the federal appellants in this case. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. You may. Thank you. ICE has had a longstanding practice of doing discreet and targeted arrests in courthouses and has worked with Massachusetts state courts to have a current policy with the court's consent. The sole question in this appeal is whether Congress sub salientio resurrected and expanded a dead privilege against civil arrests to initiate civil enforcement or civil suits for transient jurisdiction when it enacted and amended the INA. I will talk about two points of substance before I get to the balance of equities. The first, I will describe the privilege and discuss the status of the privilege when the INA was codified and amended. And then I will talk about the immigration scheme and talk about whether if it existed, whether the INA displaced it. So the first point is, as this court is well aware, Congress is assumed to legislate against certain backdrop principles. There are two well-settled principles in this case that Congress would have been legislating against both in the 50s and in the amendments in 2006. The first is that Erie had already foreclosed the general common law and for courts to impose rules as a matter of policy and statutory interpretation. As the Supreme Court held in Astoria, the question is not whether the policy is wise, but whether it was intended by the legislature. The second background principle is that by the time the INA was codified and amended, the privilege against arrest to initiate suit for transient jurisdiction had become a privilege against service of process for that transient jurisdiction and long before the INA was codified. And international shoe had already been decided by the Supreme Court, which limited one's ability to invoke the privilege if a long-arm statute would have conferred jurisdiction on that individual coming into the jurisdiction for the suit. So the question before this court is whether the common law is, quote, so well established, end quote, that Congress is assumed to have incorporated it. There are a line of Supreme Court cases describing this, Pasquantino, Taylor, and Kraft all cited in our brief. And it's Pasquantino that is the lens through which is probably the most analogous to this case because that case involved a revenue rule about prohibiting the enforcement of foreign judgments in American courts or tax judgments. And the Supreme Court determined whether someone who was charged with wire fraud could invoke that privilege or that rule when they had cheated Canada out of taxes. The Supreme Court held that the common law rule did not apply and had three tests to make this determination. The first is that it described the sovereign capacity of the executive branch versus the third-party interest of the revenue rule. It also talked about the state of the common law when the statute was enacted. In that case, they were dealing with a single statute, not a statutory scheme that was enacted in 1952. And Congress looked 
at the state of the common law from the 18th through the 19th century determined that it rested upon a privilege or on a, on a different set of circumstances than the prior cases. And then finally... Counsel, um, could you could you step back a second and just help me on some of the facts here? In your brief, you point to a November 8, 2017 um, letter from the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Trial Courts, I believe it is, to, um, to ICE as setting forth the procedures that the Massachusetts court are, are doing. I could not tell from your brief whether the federal government has agreed to be bound by the terms of that agreement, the terms of that letter. Uh, the federal government does follow the, the what the court has put into, into place. I wouldn't say that it would be agreed to, to be bound by it, but it does follow it. Um, is there it, any finding as to whether or not the federal ICE has made any arrests that are not arrests that are anticipated in that November 8, 2017 letter from Massachusetts? There's no facts on this preliminary injunction record regarding that. In fact, there's no facts on the record at all involving arrests except for one discussion of, of one arrest where they don't name the, the person being arrested. It's... it's um, just kind of a general, it's it's generalized enough that ICE was not able to identify what that arrest was to uh, verify the facts. So, and there's nothing on the record indicating that ICE is indeed, uh, or had indeed arrested any um, victim or witness. So the record in this case is is just the concern, um, this generalized concern about arrests, um, but the record lacks information regarding those arrests on this uh, preliminary injunctions. Uh, okay. So, well, so... Excuse me? Finish your answer because I have another question. Uh, I, I'm done, Your Honor. I can take another question. Uh, what is the federal statute specifically that authorizes these arrests, if there is such a statute? There, there are a number of statutes, Your Honor. Uh, so 1226A has a broad uh, authority to allow the uh, government to arrest an alien, um, arrest and detain an alien. Uh, 1226C explicitly requires that the uh, that the government shall take into custody certain immigrants charged with certain crimes when the alien is released without regard to whether the alien is released on parole, supervised release, uh, probation, and without regard to whether the alien may be arrest arrested or imprisoned again for the same offense. The Supreme Court uh, just last year in the Priyat v. Nielsen case just talked about 1226C and said that Congress was clearly admonishing the federal government to take those those uh, classes of alien into custody as soon as possible. Um, it explicitly stated that it was requiring the secretary. The, the Supreme Court stated that the statute was requiring the secretary to quote impose mandatory detention without bond hearings immediately for safety's sake. And then 1229E explicitly addresses uh, enforcement actions leading to removal proceedings in courthouses and describes what can be done with the information that is obtained in those enforcement actions. Um, 1229E2B states that uh, those actions, when they are taken, quote, at a courthouse or in connection with that appearance of the alien at the courthouse, if the alien is appearing in connection with a protective order case, a child custody case, or other civil or criminal case uh, relating to domestic violence, sexual assault, trafficking, or stalking in which the alien has been battered or subject to extreme cruelty, or if the alien is described in the U and T visa provisions, 
uh, there's certain limitations on that um, information. But that statute but makes that's, clear. That's good enough for my question. My follow-up question is: Does the supremacy clause have anything to do with this case? Yes. This, the the uh, well, well, so as a background principle, yes, it does not. As a matter of what the issue is before this court, because the issue before this court is is simply statutory interpretation. Um, but but yes, the the. Uh, Congress is also legislating against the background principle, as stated in Arizona and Herrera Inyo from this court, uh, that it has broad authority over immigration laws. And when, um, and, and there's there's a line of cases, as described in our brief, about how state courts cannot um, dictate to the federal government or or uh, attempt to modify that policy. Herrera Inyo explicitly quotes the Supreme Court talking about how the supremacy clause permits no other result, notwithstanding that Congress uh, may have limited or inhibited certain states' prerogatives to make substantive well, decisions. Let me, let me, let me a- ask you a bit about that. You're talking about whether the supremacy clause allows it or would enable it. But there's the separate question of even if the supremacy clause would allow or enable it, are there any particular rules by which Congress must bring to bear that authority, such as the plain statement rule of Gregory versus Ashcroft? So to give you an example, suppose Massachusetts courts did not want these arrests being made because they felt that it, administ- it, it, it interfered with the administration of justice in the Massachusetts state courthouses. They wanted to regulate behavior in those courthouses on their own then notwithstanding the supremacy clause, wouldn't there be an argument that a statute needs to more clearly state that it intends to override that state sovereign interest in administration of justice in its courthouses? No, Your Honor, because uh, the cases make clear that uh, state courts, and the Constitution explicitly states that state courts must follow the federal laws. There's a you know a case out of Rhode Island um, that we said in our brief, and uh uh, FERC and other cases that talks about how uh, the federal government's uh, interests trump states' local concerns. Well, that's that's in applying the law, but in terms of the rules of behavior in a state courthouse that regulate that are seen as central to the administration of justice by a state, what authority do you have that the federal government can, without plainly stating an intent to do so, preempt that and set and say that when its people go into the courthouse, they don't have to follow the rules. Five minutes uh, remaining. Your Honor, the um, the point regarding that is that the um, uh, apologies. Uh, can you repeat the question? I apologize. Sure. I'm positing the hypothetical that may not be applicable here, but that Massachusetts has a rule that says. It's central to administration of justice so that we don't scare off witnesses and parties and interfere with proceedings. There'll be no civil arrests of any type in our courthouse itself. That's a rule. There'll be, uh, they also have another rule. No, you know, yelling at the judge in the courtroom. No cell phones in the courtroom. Are you saying that Congress, without plainly stating an intent to do so, could authorize ICE to go into a state courthouse that has those rules and not abide by them. I think, Your Honor, that would be a closer question because uh, you would be dealing with potential concerns about intergovernmental immunity um, 
and other federalism concerns, but that isn't the case here because there is no Massachusetts state court policy. In fact, there's the opposite where they worked out a policy where arrests can take place in courthouses. Um, because of under the supremacy clause, uh, ICE is going and arresting individuals in public areas of the courthouse, so there would be supremacy clause concerns about uh, permitting or, or blocking uh, the federal government from areas that the public is allowed in. Um, so, and, and in this case, it does, it is clear that Congress did recognize and authorize enforcement actions in courthouses through the arrest statute because uh, 1229E does make clear that those enforcement actions can take place there. Plaintiffs argue that uh, enforcement actions can be read more narrowly. Uh, that isn't uh, the case on the face of the statute. Uh, first, the immigration system is always a civil removal system. Uh, there is no limitations on um, that authority based on the fact that it's a civil removal system. And even if someone is arrested under a criminal statute for a violation of, uh, you know, illegal reentry or whatnot, that's still a criminal proceeding that then at the end of that sentence, a person would still need to be arrested civilly. So it, re reading enforcement action leading to a removal proceeding to solely mean criminal enforcement actions isn't uh, apparent on, on the face of the text. And also, uh, enforcement action, ICE has, has interpreted broadly, and there is no limitation on that enforcement action um, to have what, what plaintiffs allege that should be interpreted. So the, the statute... But, but, but counsel, uh, isn't there a real question as to whether 1229E is, is in play at all? Your, your basic position, as I understand it, is that when Congress granted ICE or ICE's predecessor, INS at the time, the power to arrest in the 1952 statute, that grant did not encompass a long-established and familiar common law principle that would have uh, barred uh, arrest even by a sovereign in a civil matter in a state court. Isn't that your basic position? Uh, Your Honor, we, we do describe how even if you accepted their premise that the 1952 statute would be relevant, it would not apply. However, as we argue in our brief, and we cite a number of cases to this effect, Bilski, Brown and Williamson, Fausto, uh, the Supreme Court has uh, continually held that a statute is interpreted as a whole. It is uh, the duty of the court to reconcile the different um, parts of the statutes. And so we would, we would argue that the dispositive time for interpretation would be that later 2006 uh, time period. However, we maintain that... Um, even in the 50s, this privilege did not exist and never applied to the sovereign. Um, which brings me to, there. I would like to alert this court of some citations on that point um, that uh, we uh, did not include in our brief. Uh, for instance... Send us a letter. Excuse me? Send us a letter. Okay, thank you, Your Honor. You can go ahead and argue it, but send us a letter also. Well, uh, I will do, Your Honor. That, that case is Wheelie v. Rick Rickham. Uh, it's 92 English reports, 882 from 1694 that states that, quote, certainly no privilege is good against the king. Um, there's another case, J.H. Baker reports of, of cases from the time of King Henry VIII on page 93 to 94, which talks about, quote, known shall never have privilege against the king. So even in the English cases... May, may, may I ask you, counsel, was Judge Tarraway a counsel in either of those cases? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. 
may I, may I reserve my um, remaining time for rebuttal? Harvey? May I reserve my remaining time for rebuttal? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> but you were on the base too, uh, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> Quite probably, Juan. <laughs> if you're ready, counsel, you may proceed. Thank you very much, Your Honor, uh, and may it please the court. I won't uh, weigh in on this discussion, but um, I do want to start. Uh, I am, my name is David Dimmer. I'm uh, counsel for the plaintiffs uh, in this case. And I want to start with Judge Carada's question because I, I really uh, this is a really important issue. And I just want to be crystal clear that it is one thing that I think is really indisputable is that under Massachusetts law, putting aside any sort of intervention from the federal government, these arrests would not be permitted. And, 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 and very much because the state, as a matter of its sovereign interests, has established that they should not be. And I point the court to the Valley Bank case from the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court that's cited on page 39 of our brief. The Massachusetts SJC described this privilege against civil courthouse arrests and characterized it as a prerogative exerted by the sovereign power through the courts for the furtherance of the ends of justice. Justice Cipher's recent opinion, his single justice opinion for the SJC in the Doe case that's on uh, page 146 of the joint appendix, specifically endorses the privilege and describes it as an unremarkable right. proposition. Right. Well, what's the relevance of those cases, Mr. Zimmer? My, my, my fundamental understanding of a federal statute, such as the 1952 Immigration Naturalization Act, is that Congress intends those statutes to operate uniformly throughout the country. So are you suggesting that the INA somehow mystically incorporated some state-by-state -state privilege? No, I, into not its at all. No, let me, and let me, I want to get to that. I just wanted to be clear that, that, um, that, that to the extent Massachusetts law is relevant, that it is very clear that it, that it would apply yeah, here. But, what, but no. I'm asking, I'm asking you the further question right. of why would Massachusetts law be relevant? Right. No, and our primary argument does not depend on Massachusetts law. Um, uh, and it, and is based do on. Do any the, of your arguments depend on Massachusetts law? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, sort of a backup argument that we make, which, which is that, that the, so our primary argument is that the privilege that the INA incorporated the general background common law principle, which would apply uniformly as, as a matter of statutory interpretation, incorporating this well-settled common law privilege. That would not vary state by state. As I understand Jen, Judge Rakoff's opinion in the New York case, he, he, sort of, he concluded that at the very least, based on the Gregory v. Ashcroft and that line of cases, that at the very least the INA doesn't authorize the agency to act in violation of the state law in which it's operating. That's not our primary argument, but to the, the extent the court adopts that approach... Yeah, but what, what, I'm, what I'm curious about is, I understand, I've read Judge Rakoff's opinion. I don't see that argument at all in your brief. Oh, uh, to the contrary, Your, Your Honor, I think we, we make it, again, as a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a secondary argument, it's a backup okay. argument, right. but, but we, we do argue at several places um, that, you know, if the court, at the very least, the INA does not uh, sort of contain the Gregory v. Ashcroft clear statement that, that it intended to authorize the agency to act in violation of state law. But our primary argument um, is certain, and, and the argument that Judge Talwani correctly accepted here, is that, the, is that the INA, just like every other statute, is presumed to incorporate background common law principles. And the, the, the privilege against civil courthouse arrest is a long-standing and well-settled background common law principle 
that goes back half a millennium and was recognized, including in cases just in the years directly before the INA was enacted. Let let me me ask you about that, because I was having some trouble with that. When I look at the cases cited, I see personal actions, civil actions brought by private parties to vindicate private interests. And you make, I think, a pretty convincing argument that those at common law, arrests could not be used in those in those actions. And there isn't a lot of recent law because nobody's doing it and the cause to make arrests. Fine. But then I look, there's also pretty clear that arrests by the sovereign in criminal cases could be made in the courthouse. What we seem to have a gap on is what do you do when it's an arrest by the sovereign in a non-criminal proceeding, but to vindicate the sovereign's interest in a rule of law? I couldn't find in the briefs any case law on that, much less a long-established and familiar rule that would address what would seem to be the situation we have here. Sure. So let me let me let, let me let me answer that directly. I mean, I agree. There's no case either way from either party on that. Um, and but, but what I would point the court to is the very cases the government cites. Those were obviously cases involving the sovereign, and the distinction they drew was not, oh well, this is an exception because it's a case brought by the sovereign. The distinction they drew was this is a this is a criminal case. This is a criminal arrest, and the distinction that all of those cases, the very cases the government cites, drew, is between. Criminal arrests and, and civil arrests. Well, criminal then let's arrests. stay, let's, let's stay it, with it, that for a second. Put the sovereign to the side, and they say criminal. So you've got cases saying okay in criminal, and you've got cases saying no in these personal civil actions. What you still don't have are cases in which the interest being indicated arises out of a violation of law with the sovereign trying to vindicate that interest. You've still got a gap there. But I don't think, I mean, there may be a gap in terms of fact pattern, but I don't think there's a gap in terms of principle in the sense that the the principle repeated over and over again, including in the cases the government cites, is that this is a privilege with a wide application in the civil context and a limited of no application in the criminal context. In in private actions between private parties among uh, dealing with private affairs. But it, it just it just beggars credulity. To say that a principle can be long established and familiar when you can't even cite a single analogous case in which the privilege was applied in the manner in which you seek to have the district court apply it. Well, I, I disagree with that, Your Honor, in the sense that what we're talking about is a is a is a um, is an question of what what Congress intended when it enacted this statute. Yeah. And Congress was enacting a civil a generic civil arrest provision against the background of centuries worth of cases uh, that applied this privilege in the context of civil arrests. None of which applied this case to a state sovereign trying to enforce governmental interests. But but no no case in in the criminal or civil context suggests that that's a relevant distinction. The distinction that all the cases drew was between the civil and criminal law. And if you look at the Conley case on which the government relies, it in fact goes into detail as to why there's an exception specifically in the criminal context. And it doesn't talk about how the government has some heightened interest. It talks about how the government has a heightened interest in enforcing the criminal law. And well, you, if you look, all, if, you, if you look you make, all the way back to, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You make, I mean, you make a fair point that we simply can't point to the fact that oh, in that case, someone was driving a black car, and in this case, it's a red car, so the rule doesn't apply. The the difference in facts need to be 
of some significance. But the difference between a civil personal right being vindicated where you're balancing private interests and a case in which what you're vindicating is the violation of a law by the state, that does seem to be the type of thing that one can reasonably think, geez, that seems pretty significant. Is there any case law telling me if it is significant or not? Well, so two responses, Your Honor. First, I guess I'd go back to the point that that we're not saying that Congress couldn't have done this. The question is, when Congress enacted this general civil arrest uh, provision against the background of a privilege that had universally been characterized as applying to civil arrest, I'm not aware of a single case in any context exempting any class of civil arrests, that Congress could have spoken clearly to this issue, and it didn't do so. And I'd also point the court to Blackstone. If you look at, at, at Book 3 of Blackstone, there's an entire chapter in there that's about government suits, uh, that involves suits by the government, including the government enforcing sort of quintessentially governmental laws like tax collection uh, and collecting fines and forfeitures. And the privilege of, the privilege is described in the process chapter, which is Chapter 19, that, that by its terms applies you know, to all civil process described in that book. And nothing in Blackstone remotely suggests that Chapter 17 about governmental suits involving the government, civil suits involving the government, is somehow exempted from that. Again, I, I mean, it doesn't, again, I'm not claiming that we have a specific case, but I think the lack of cases here combined with the fact that this privilege was always characterized as a generally applicable privilege to civil arrests is really all that you need to know in order, again, not to say that Congress couldn't have done anything about it, but that the presumption applies that when Congress created this generic civil arrest scheme, when it authorized, uh, you know, the federal agents to, to conduct civil arrests, that it would have done so with the background understanding that for 500 years, civil arrests could not have been carried out against people attending court. And that's especially true given that the purposes behind the privilege, uh, as it existed in the common law, are directly applicable, if anything more applicable, in the context of this type of governmental uh, civil arrest scheme. And I mean, I think that, you know, the two purposes that were consistently recognized as un as underlining the privilege as, as being the basis for it are ensuring that parties and witnesses are able to attend court and ensuring that courts aren't disrupted uh, by by civil arrests in the, in the courts. And of course, there's no real dispute here that the government, that the directive and the government's courthouse arrest policy has undermined um, has undermined those purposes in exactly the way that common law courts have feared for centuries. The undisputed record evidence is that witnesses, uh, and, and including uh, domestic violence victims, have been deterred from attending court. I point the court to the brief from the 27 domestic violence organizations who describe women who have risked near-fatal abuse rather than appear in court out of fear of civil arrest. And perhaps even more dramatically, that after the district court's preliminary injunction in, in this case, uh, that women in similar situations have found the courage to appear in court, in part by carrying copies of the district court's preliminary injunction with them when they appear in court. Mr. Zimmer, Mr. Zimmer, you began by citing two Massachusetts cases on civil arrests. Do either of them involve our situation, in other words, arrest by the sovereign at all? Yes. The, the, most, the, the Doe case, which is the recent single justice opinion from Justice Cipher, specifically involved, in fact, the very civil arrests at issue here, and she described, and this is on um, page 146 of the record, she described it as an unremarkable proposition under state law that the, that the Massachusetts privilege would apply to federal to arrest by federal officers. She obviously recognized that that could be trumped by federal law, but that as a matter of... Yeah, go ahead, Fred. So what do we... I keep coming back, because I actually found your backup argument more attractive than your lead argument. 
except when I then saw them then puzzled on the facts on just what Massachusetts policy is, because I come back to that letter from Chief Justice of the trial court that postdates those two Massachusetts cases and doesn't seem to suggest that Massachusetts has a problem with a number of types of arrests that they describe in here. And we're told by the government's counsel today that, that those are the only arrests that are being made. So if that's true, what the injunction is doing is enjoining ICE from making arrests that the Massachusetts trial court itself has invited them to come in and make. So I do not disagree more strongly with that characterization of that letter. That letter was dealing with a specific issue, which was how to implement the SJC's decision in Lund. It was not engaging at a broad level with whether these arrests were permissible or not. And also, you know, obviously the Massachusetts trial court cannot in a letter displace what are, what are centuries of Massachusetts law, including the recent recognition uh, by uh, Judge Justice Cipher on the SJC that Massachusetts state law, again, absent some sort of federal uh, intrusion, uh, would 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 not permit these arrests, including by by federal officers, and and you know moreover, I, I also want to emphasize, and we cite uh, this letter at um, uh, I forget exactly where it is, but it's um, uh, where the, the government has actually made very very clear. Uh, I think it's in footnote ten on page fifty four of our brief that they will not follow state rules. They may have tried to, they may have said that they'll follow this one, but that when they don't like a rule, they will not follow it. Um, the, the brief from the from the states, the amicus brief from the states, makes this clear, and in fact describes situations in which New York has completely barred these arrests, and yet ICE has literally broken down the doors of the New York state courthouses in order to uh, arrest somebody uh, to conduct civil arrests. So I don't think there can be any serious dispute either that Massachusetts, in law from the SJC, uh, would not permit these arrests if it were given the choice by the federal government. And or that, the, that 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 rule is something that the federal government has consistently refused to follow, including in other states that have made this clear. And and I don't think that that letter um, really is intended to to address this issue at all. It certainly doesn't doesn't and obviously could not displace um, SJC law. And of course, to the extent that there was a question about that, uh, this question. I have a question. That question. Uh, to the, just to the extent there was a question about Massachusetts law, that could obviously be certified. Mr. Zimmer. Um, not, notwithstanding my dislike for this whole procedure, I keep coming back to the following, particularly in view of the statements that uh, Judge Selya made, that the need for uniformity in action, uh, if assuming uh, one of the various statutes uh, that were mentioned by your colleague applies to the actions of the ICE in this case, I am wondering why uh, the Supremacy Clause doesn't decide this case. Sure. Well, the reason the Supremacy Clause doesn't decide this case is that the whole question here is a question of statutory interpretation. And so the question, we're not arguing that, uh, we're not arguing in this appeal that, that, that Congress couldn't have authorized these arrests. We're arguing that it didn't authorize them. And there are really two different reasons. One is because the statute presumptively incorporates this background common law privilege. And second, at the very least, as Judge Rakoff uh, concluded in, in, in his decision... But look, look, excuse me. Assuming the, the, they have a, a, a valid federal law that applies to the circumstances of this case, it says you can go into any courthouse and, and, and uh, arrest uh, 
the people here involved. That's that's the scenario that I see. Assuming that's the case, why doesn't the supremacy clause decide the case? Well, that's you know our whole argument is that that's not what the statute is. What the statute does, uh, you know, in that situation, maybe the supremacy clause would decide this case. But our argument Five is that remaining that you don't have that kind of uh, statutory grant of authority here. The statute creates a generic, uh, gives a generic authorization for civil courthouse arrests. And on all of the cases we cite, uh, Lexmark, Bank of America, all of the cases we cite in our brief, when you have this type of generic grant of authority, it presumptively incorporates background common law principles. And similarly, under Gregory v. Ashcroft, it presumptively does not displace uh, state common law, back, background common law rules. And nothing in the statute, nothing in the statute identifies where these civil arrests can take place. Nothing displaces the uh, the background common law rules or provides the clear statement under Gregory v. Ashcroft uh, that, that would disrupt what the Massachusetts states have recognized is necessary to exercise uh, a prerogative exerted by the sovereign power through the courts. That's how the SJC has described this privilege. And under Gregory v. Ashcroft, for that determination to be set aside requires a clear statement uh, in the statute. And the statute says absolutely nothing about where these civil arrests can be carried out. Literally nothing at all. Um, well, the second to part to this, uh, following up on, on Judge Selya's uh, question, uh, is the common law of Massachusetts the same throughout the United States? Uh, no, although we know, uh, you know, we, I would note if you look at the Supreme Court's decision in Stewart v. Ramsey, Judge Rakoff recognized this. The states, uh, the amicus brief submitted by the states makes this clear. This is a privilege. This isn't a uniquely Massachusetts privilege. I think most states, not all states, have a very similar rule. So, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, approach that looks at state common law might lead to some variation, but I think it would be minimal. And there are parts of the INA that actually vary state by state. If you look at Section 1357G, it recognizes that there are, con there are certain contexts in which local law... Uh, are, are you local aware that there are at least two federal jurisdictions that don't have uh, uh, common law? Um, what, well, what would be the rule in those jurisdictions? You mean to the, well, I mean, to the extent that there was no, uh, you know, background principle prohibiting these arrests, again, under sort of the J Judge Rakoff's approach, or the, the sort of Gregory v. Ashcroft approach, you know, if the state didn't prohibit the arrests, then, then you know, under that approach, then ICE could carry out those arrests. Again, that's not our, our primary argument is that it is uniform, and it follows the general common law background rule. But, you know, it, to the extent, as Judge Rakoff concluded, uh, it, the, the rule sort of does, the, the, what the statutory authorization doesn't um, uh, doesn't permit arrest in violation of, of state privilege, then if the state didn't have a privilege, then there would be no limitation. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, let me just quickly address, if there aren't other questions on this issue, the Section 1229E on which the government relies. And I think that that provision really just doesn't say anything about the question before this court in the sense that the government seems to concede that enforcement actions is broader than just civil arrests, as it plainly is. Our argument is not that enforcement actions doesn't include civil arrests. Our argument is that it's broader than that. The statute implies this applies this broader term in the context of a whole series of locations, of which courthouses are one example. And so the fact that you have this broad set of actions far broader than what we're challenging here, to a broad set of locations, far broader than what we're challenging here, means that Congress would have written that provision the same way regardless of the outcome of this case. It would have taken extremely contorted language to try to carve out the specific situation we're dealing with here. And so I think that that provision 
uh, doesn't speak at all to the question before the court and certainly doesn't speak uh, directly to it. Um, uh, if the court, um, I also just want to quickly um, uh, quickly address Pasquantino on which the government relies. I think, frankly, the Pasquantino actually supports our position, especially in the sense that it focuses so strongly um, on the purposes behind the privilege and whether a pur the purposes apply in the statutory context in which the common law rule is being considered. As I explained, uh, and as Judge Rakoff makes very clear and Judge Talwani made clear, the two purposes that have always motivated the common law privilege here um, are directly applicable in this context, and the government doesn't dispute uh, doesn't dispute that. And I think the Supreme Court's reasoning in Pasquantino really supports, not undermines, uh, our position, um, uh, especially because uh, of that very close alignment uh, between uh, between the privilege and the common law in here, and also because you you have all these cases saying directly that the privilege applies in the civil context, and Congress was enacting exactly the type of civil arrest scheme, um, a, a civil, not criminal arrest scheme, that had long been recognized to be covered by the privilege. Um, That's time. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Counsel for the government, I think you have five minutes. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Six. So I'd, I'd like to just address a, a couple of the points that uh, Counsel made uh, first off, in regards to the scope of the privilege and um, matter of CDO, uh, the, the case as a factual matter doesn't state that uh, it, under Massachusetts law the privilege would apply to the government. It says uh, even assuming that that would be the case, um, you know, there, there are reasons to not issue a broad uh, um, writ in this case that, that, that had no precedent. Similarly, in this court in Northern Light Co. Uh, talked about how when someone saw a privilege, that the privilege that, that the court was not going to issue a broad per se rule when when uh, Lamb made clear that the privilege was not meant to be expanded upon the reason which it was founded. So in this case, um, it's not the case that courts, both courts, both the Massachusetts courts and the federal court has recognized that any such privilege to the extent it did exist does not exist to allow a, a nationwide, or not nationwide, statewide injunction, uh, but applies in certain particularized individual cases when sought, and it's a privilege that can be waived. But, but, but that almost seems to be a revival of your, of your lack of standing defense that you seem to have abandoned on appeal. Yes, Your Honor, we, we still contend that the parties don't have standing. Uh, we didn't uh, focus on that in our brief, but obviously standing is not something you can waive. Uh, because what do you mean you didn't, you didn't focus on, well, first of all, it depends what type of standing, whether we're talking about statutory standing or, or constitutional standing. But normally, with the, with the exception of claims that go to Article Three jurisdiction, all right. Uh, defenses can certainly be waived by the failure to brief arguments. Yes, and, and standing's one of those that cannot be waived. However, we did not well, press certain it. types of standing. Yeah, yes, and our, our argument was constitutional standing. Uh, we argued that uh, these parties don't; none of them have standing because you're dealing with two Massachusetts organizations or uh, entities whose uh, having to deal with the fact that another sovereign has arrested individuals is not. Um, is not a cognizable injury. And then also the uh, one other organization... Well, the, the, the district attorneys are arguing, uh, are arguing uh, what, what would seem on its face to be 
a real and fairly direct interference with their ability to conduct business. So I think this. I mean, they have to bring. They have to bring. defendants, complainants, witnesses, other parties into state court proceedings, which they say, without without any real rebuttal by the government, are in danger of being interrupted if these types of civil arrests are allowed. Yes, Your Honor, and I think, um, as as we described at the district court, we would contend that those types of... um, day-to-day modifications of behaviors is not cognizable. However, the point I was well, making... Why not? In terms of why, why not? I, I don't understand why Why not. I mean, it's it's easy to easy to say you contend, but it, it seems to me if I'm, I'm sworn by law as the district attorney of X county, all right, I've got to uphold the law and I've got to enforce it. And and you you come along with a rule or a practice, that is, or an interpretation of a statute, that that is going to inhibit, clearly, my ability to enforce it, because it it is going to make it harder for me to get cases before juries, because jurors can be be snapped up, witnesses can be snapped up, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm... struggling with the notion of, of under what principle that isn't a cognizable injury to the district attorney in her official capacity. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, we didn't press that on appeal. Uh, but, you're so pressing it, but you're pressing it now. That's what I don't understand because I assumed from your brief that you had abandoned that position, but you've made it fairly clear that you're not. No, Your Honor, my, my intent was not to resurrect that argument. My intent was just okay. that if, if this court was to determine standing, want to independ- independently rule on standing, it could. Um, that's yeah, that's, that's the first standing. point. I, I understand how a lack of clarity about what the rules are in the state courthouses for arrest by the sovereign, how that helps you on their first argument. But on the Gregory versus Ashcroft type argument, um, if we found that otherwise had merit, don't we need to know what the rules are for administering justice inside the courthouses of Massachusetts, and particularly how they would deal with civil arrest by the sovereign? Uh, so, Your Honor, I, th- I think that the, the point on that is just that Massachusetts state, state law is not as broad as um, the other, the uh, opposing counsel, uh, Sorry, Mr. Zimmer uh, mentioned. Uh, so, in this my case, my question wasn't whether it was brought up. My question was simpler than that. Don't we need to know what it is? If we assume that Congress would not have authorized ICE to go in and conduct themselves in manners that are prohibited by states in the administration of justice in their courthouses, if we assume for a moment, I know you don't agree with that, then wouldn't the second step be we need to know? what the rules are in Massachusetts and whether ICE is violating or proposing to violate them. Uh, yes, Your Honor. I, I, accepting the premise that Congress would allow states to dictate to the federal government what it could and could not do, which obviously we strongly object to, uh, even, even accepting that premise, the state court 
uh, rules in Massachusetts do not actually have this broad uh, civil uh, uh, rule against civil arrest. It also deals with service of process and deals with uh, transient jurisdiction. Well, and I understand that's your position. Their positions otherwise. You point to this letter. They point to the uh, what is it? Case of C, matter of C. Why isn't the simple thing for us to do is just ask the Massachusetts SJC by certifying a question? Please tell us whether what what the rules are for the important rules for administering justice. Does this violate it or not in Massachusetts? And if they say it doesn't, you're probably home free on your on their second alternative argument, which may explain why it's their alternative argument. But if they say it does, then we've really got a Gregory versus Ashcroft deal on our hands where you'd have to win at the higher level. I think the issue, again, in, in that is that the case, the supremacy case law is clear that state courts must follow a federal law that's in the Constitution, and there are a line of cases talking about how states cannot dictate policy to the federal government. That's so I don't time. Think well, um, but let me ask if I could, Judge Tarawaya. Um, I mean, suppose Congress passed a law saying ICE agents can carry guns, period. And a state court, for safety reasons, because of several shootings in the courthouse, has passed the rule for all of its states that no one can have a gun going inside the courthouse. Are you saying ICE agents could insist on keeping their guns going in the courthouse? I, I think that would be a closer question, and I would need to do a, a supremacy clause analysis on that type of issue. Uh, but, well, you know, how I is this different? Why, how is this different? Why this isn't a closer question? They've said ICE can make civil arrests, period. Haven't said where. And if a state had an important administrative policy against that, then how is that different than the hypothetical I gave you? Because it, it would be an instance where it would be singling out the federal government and telling the federal government that it could not do something which would violate intergovernmental immunities. No, the if state rule is no, 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 no arrests in the courthouse other than people in custody. That's the state rule, including by the state. I think that would be a closer call, but that just isn't the case here. In this case, you have the Massachusetts courts coming to a procedure for ICE to arrest in public areas, and then you have a suit brought by individuals who are not uh, happy with that policy and who are involved in that policy and in the matter of CETO case, attempting to get the federal court to, to do what the Massachusetts courts did not. Does um, the, record here, the record here shows that they were participants in some process that led to the November 18, 2017 letter? The, the CPCS uh, affidavit in this case uh, describes how it was involved in the creation of the court policy and in the matter of CEDO. Um, that's um, from the Klein Declaration. Um, it looks like I had written down 916 in, in the um, appendix, but... Thank you. I verified that. Uh, so, um, since I'm, I'm out of time, uh, for the foregoing reasons, uh, unless there's any other questions, I... Um, would uh, ask that this court uh, reverse the district court's injunction in this case. Thank you. You're going to provide us with a letter on those uh, ancient cases that Judge Selya said it. Yes, Your Honor, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, is there a date by which you would like me to submit it? I can do it as soon as possible. You have 10 days. Okay, thank you. Don't make it a brief, just be brief. Yes, un understood. Look at First Circuit Rule 28J. Great, thank you.
Thank this you. Session, this session of the Honorable United States Court of Appeals is now recessed until the next session of the court. God save the United States of America and this honorable court. Counsel, you may now disconnect from the meeting.